0: You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, I'm going to welcome you back to your seats. As you head there, if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 verses 1 through 9 is where we'll be today. So Luke 10, 1 through 9. If you're using one of the hardback black Bibles there in the back, looks like this. You'll be on page 868, so feel free to use one of those if you want to. Luke 10, 1 through 9. So several years ago, I was in Target doing some grocery shopping at night. At that point in time, Megan and I, I think just had two kids, but it was like 9 PM at night. Everyone was asleep. The kids were asleep. Megan was resting. I'm at the store trying to just get a few items for the week that's ahead and I'm walking through the dairy aisle and as I turned the corner, someone stopped me and began to have a conversation with me. And to be honest, um, I'm a pretty extroverted guy, but at that point in the night, I just wanted to get my groceries and get home. But he said, hey, I really like your shirt. He complimented my shirt, and he asked me where I bought it, and so I answered his question, and we continued this conversation. And every time it seemed like the conversation was about to end, he'd ask me another question, and the conversation would continue. And then finally, we had talked for long enough that I felt like I could end this conversation somewhat abruptly, and it wouldn't be too rude. Um, if If you've been in conversations like that, you know, you're kind of making the calculation, like, when can I end this conversation? And so it had kind of lulled to a close again. I had told him I had a wife and kids, so I, I finally just said, hey, I'm gonna get the rest of my groceries, get home to my family, you know, nice to meet you. And he said, well, okay, yeah, just, just before you go though, I have this really great business opportunity that I think you'd be really good at. And then he went on to pitch me on this multi-level marketing uh, business that was popular at the time. And um, I had done those before and I just said, hey, I'm not interested, appreciate it, bye. Um, and, you know, we, we might kind of laugh at that story because of how ridiculous it even feels being, like, you know, confront- or like approached in the Target aisle or the Dairy aisle at Target. Um, but the reality is, is that um, sometimes my experience in the Dairy aisle is a bit like other people experience evangelism from Christians. And as I thought about that later, I thought to myself, this, there's got to be a different way. I did, did not feel great to be approached in that way, and I thought, how can we do this differently? Is there a way that we can do this a bit more like Jesus? Because instead of selling Amway or Young Living Essential Oils, we're trying to tell people about the good news of Jesus. I don't think this is what Jesus had in mind for us, and so today we're going to talk about relational witness. We're continuing our series in Uh, the rhythms of Jesus, embracing the rhythms of Jesus in our age of distraction. And we want to understand some of the rhythms that Jesus kept in his own life. And so in the fall, we talked about his personal rhythms, rhythms like prayer and Bible reading and Sabbath. And beginning in January, we've been talking about more of his outward rhythms, his relational and public rhythms. And so last week, we talked about hospitality. And today, we're going to talk about relational witness. And here's what I know. When I begin to talk about evangelism, it's already making some of you uncomfortable knowing that this is going to be the topic tonight, because for some of you, you probably don't do evangelism as much as you think that you should, or some of you just think people shouldn't do it at all, and others of you have just, it kind of makes you squeamy because you've had really bad experiences with it. According to a Barna research study from a few years ago, almost half of U.S. millennials who identify as practicing Christians say that it is wrong to share your faith with someone else in the hopes that they would at some point share that faith. Now, 94% of those same millennials say that the best thing that could happen to someone, the best thing that could happen to them is that they would come to faith in Jesus. I find that interesting. Nearly all of them say that the best thing that could happen to somebody is that they come to faith in Jesus, but nearly half of them say it would be wrong to tell them about Jesus. And it made me wonder, where, where is this coming from? And I think this is a product of our cultural moment, because we live in an age where increasingly more and more people think that if someone disagrees with you, then that means that they are judging you. Simply put, we don't want people to judge us, and we don't want to judge others but I do think there is a better way. It does not have to be experienced in that way. What if we could engage in this rhythm of relational witness like Jesus? I think that we can. The elders and the deacons and the staff, we spent the last month together reading about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've taken our 15-minute challenge throughout this 31 days of prayer and fasting, you've been working your way through Luke as well. And one of the goals of our leadership team was to better understand how Jesus did ministry. And I was personally struck, as I read through the Gospel of Luke, by how many times we see Jesus proclaiming the kingdom, preaching the kingdom, teaching about the kingdom, calling people to repent and join God's kingdom. And Jesus did that because he was absolutely convinced that the kingdom of God was good news for people. He knew that if someone were to hear this message and respond, this would be good for them. And so he was faithful to tell people about this good news. And so here will be kind of the summary of the message this afternoon. This is somewhat of a definition of relational witness for us and how we want to think about it. What I want us to hear is that relational witness means that we consistently talk about Jesus because we truly believe the kingdom of God is good news for people. In our passage from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 9, I have five lessons for us on relational witness that we will learn from Jesus today. And so, if you have your Bibles open to Luke 10, verses 1 through 9, I'll read it and you go ahead and follow along. It says this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whenever, or whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in, or in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. We know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And so as we open our Bibles, would you help us? We ask that your spirit would help us. Open our eyes that we would behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So five lessons on relational witness from Jesus. So beginning in verse 1, Jesus here is sending out 72 disciples to go on ahead of him and prepare the way for his preaching ministry. And based on this interaction, we have five lessons we can learn. And the first is that we witness because the kingdom is good news. Jesus was convinced that the kingdom was good news for people. Now, he did have a bit of an advantage in this, right? He had the inside scoop. He knew what was going on. He knew what he, was, what he came to do. He knew what God was going to do. But I've been struck, as I said earlier, just by how freely Jesus spoke about the kingdom. He was always talking about this good news of the kingdom because he knew that it was good for people to hear this message and to receive it. And here in Luke 10, he's sending out these 72 disciples to join him in this work. But up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, it has primarily been Jesus who's been doing this work of preaching the good news of the kingdom. For example, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, he's just beginning his public ministry. He's preaching and he's teaching in synagogues and multiple different towns and villages, and he's healing people, he's casting out demons. And we'll see this repeated over and over in the life of Jesus. He's teaching and preaching about the kingdom on the one hand and healing and casting out demons, demonstrating the kingdom on the other hand. And after a full day of ministry, the next day he goes to this desolate place. You'll, you'll see that over and over in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus goes to this desolate place to be alone, and the crowds come to find him. And so they do that again in Luke chapter 4. And in verses 43 and 44, here's what Jesus says to them. And hear this, because here we're going to get a purpose statement about Jesus' ministry from the lips of Jesus. And here's what he says. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus came to preach about the kingdom of God, because it is good news. And in the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which um, you know, scholars and people who study the Bible often take Luke and Acts together, because they're both written by the same person. And they're kind of like sequels. It's like a two-part story there. And in Luke and Acts together, the word for good news, as on its own, which is euangelion, it never appears on its own in all of Luke and Acts. But 25 times the word is used in combination with the word preach or proclaim. Luke wants us to see that the good news is something we preach, something we proclaim, something that Jesus was communicating to others. We're meant to tell people about this good news. And I've heard people say that the Bible never uses the word evangelism. And it's true, but I think it can be a bit of a misleading statement because the word evangelism comes from this word good news. And Jesus is always preaching and proclaiming it. And so, you know, if your definition is the kind of experience that thinks of scheming and manipulation and makes you a bit kind of squeamish, then no, the Bible never talks about that. But if we think of evangelism like Jesus did, simply announcing the good news that God has come to save us, that the brokenness of the world is being made right, that us who are rebellious and sinful, that God will forgive us and welcome us into his kingdom, If we're announcing that good news, then evangelism is absolutely in the Bible. And do you know who did it more than anyone else? Jesus. In his rhythm of life, he was constantly talking about the good news of the kingdom of God. If we believe that this is good news, and if we believe that the gospel is having an impact in our lives and the lives of people around us, then it will be natural that we'll tell people about it. And here's where I do think those statistics I was talking about earlier kind of get in the way because more and more people think that if you disagree with somebody and and especially about something as deep as faith in Jesus, then that will mean that you are judging them. And we don't like to judge people and we don't like to be judged and so we try to be careful about all of that. So often we just don't say anything then. But Jesus believed that this news was good enough. To cross some of those awkward and challenging barriers at times to tell people about this good news. And you know who agrees with Jesus on this? A guy named Penn Gillette from the Las Vegas Act, Penn and Teller. Now, Penn is an atheist, okay, but he thinks Christians should tell others about the gospel, which he calls proselytizing in this video that he put on YouTube. There's this short video he posted several years ago in which he tells a story about a man who came up and gave him a Bible after the show in an effort to evangelize him. And Penn shared about how much he respected and appreciated this man's courage and care to come and talk to him. And here's where the quote from Penn begins. He says, It was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist, but he was not defensive. He looked me right in the eyes. He was truly complimentary about the show. It didn't seem like empty flattery, and he was really kind and nice and sane, and he looked me in the eyes and talked to me and gave me this Bible. And then Penn went on to talk about how he doesn't respect people who don't share their faith. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's really worth telling them this, Or And you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it too socially awkward. And he asks, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Now, not every atheist is going to see this the same way that he does. And not every one of your neighbors is going to see it the same way either. Maybe less and less in our cultural moment, but he understands something. If we believe it is good news, and Jesus was convinced that it was, then the kingdom of God is something we should proclaim and tell other people about. The Bible presents Jesus as someone who came to proclaim the good news because he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was good for people. The second lesson we learn is that we witness to the many, but we multiply through the few. Throughout the life of Jesus, he welcomes everyone. Anyone who will come to hear the good news, he welcomes them to hear the gospel preached. In Luke 6, it says that a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people. So he already has a great crowd of disciples, and then Luke says there's also this great multitude of others who have all gathered to hear him teach. In Luke 8, the crowds are so massive, they've gathered so tightly that his mother and his brothers can't even get to Jesus to communicate something to him. And it wasn't just that he welcomed the many in terms of sheer numbers, but he also welcomed the many that other religious leaders would cast aside tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes, and those who would be thought of as outsiders. The good news that Jesus brought was for everyone. He was indiscriminate in who he told about the good news. He did not declare some unworthy or think that others would be unwilling, so he's not going to tell them. He didn't hold back the good news. He witnessed to the many, but he multiplied himself through the few. It was not the crowds who would then carry on his ministry when he died. It was his few and faithful disciples. And we see this in Jesus' kind of like concentric circles of relationship and investment. There were three disciples that were closer than any others, Peter, James, and John. He had 12 disciples that he named apostles whom he spent the most time with. And then here we see is that in some way or another, he had delineated 72 others that he's going to send out in this second round of ministry. And in fact, we see this progression just here in Luke, the beginning of chapter eight, Jesus is the one who's preaching the good news and healing people. And it says his disciples and many other women are along, along with him doing that work. And then in Luke chapter nine, Jesus sends out the 12 to preach the good news and heal. And now here at the beginning of chapter 10, he sends out the 72. And so you see the building progression. Luke 8, it's Jesus doing the ministry. Luke 9, the 12 are sent out. Luke 10, the 72 are sent out. And you see the way that he multiplied through the few, but always this expanding group of disciples. Like Jesus, we should be generous in the way that we tell others about the good news. Never declaring anyone too good or not good enough to hear the good news of the gospel. And like Jesus, we should also be able to identify a handful of people that we are investing in most. For some of you, it, it will be hard to name certain people. I was talking with somebody about this just recently, because that will mean then that you're not naming other people, and that will feel maybe kind of exclusive. And I get that, but we need to be honest with ourselves that we have limited capacity, if we try to have a deep relationship with everyone we will have a deep relationship with no one and so in our relational witness we should have an open posture toward everyone but also know that we can only invest in a few so here's what i would encourage you to do this week take time to write down the name of 10 people that you want to be intentional with in your relationship Now, they could be here at River City Church, they could not be, they could be believers, they could not, they could be neighbors, friends, family, co-workers, but think about 10, write them down and start praying for them regularly. The third lesson we can learn about relational witness is that we pray for witnesses and then we become a witness. We pray for them and we become one. So Jesus names the reality of the situation in verse 2. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So he's saying that there are many people in need of this good news. There are many who will receive it, who are prepared. The harvest is plentiful. But it will require laborers who are willing to go and proclaim the good news, and those are few. And so what do you do? Therefore, he says, pray. Maybe you didn't expect that word. Maybe you were thinking, like, what's the best strategy? And so we go get, you know, whatever the hottest selling book is about the church that, you know, grew to 10,000, and we're going to adopt their strategy so that we can bring new people. And what does Jesus say? The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. What do we do? Pray. Pray that God, the Lord of the harvest, will send out laborers. We're incredibly dependent upon the Lord for this work. This prayer acknowledges our need for him. The master of the harvest is in charge. The laborers, they go where they're told, they do what they're told, and we ask God for help. He will delight to answer our prayer for more laborers. And there's three ways that'll happen. The first is that those who know the good news but have neglected this responsibility will feel compelled by Christ's love to become ministers of reconciliation. We're praying that for our whole church this year, that we will become ministers of reconciliation because we are compelled by Christ's love. Second, those who are yet to receive the good news will receive it and they will become laborers. So we're praying that some some of those harvest people out there are gonna receive that good news and become laborers as well. And the third is that those who are praying the prayer themselves will also become an answer to that prayer. That's what happens here. In verse three, right after telling them to pray, Jesus says, go your way. Become the laborers that you're praying for. Jesus is sending the 72 to answer the prayer that he's telling them to pray. The fourth lesson is that we witness with humility and vulnerability. In verse three, Jesus says that he's sending them out as lambs among wolves. When I read that this week, I thought, what what does that mean? I don't know that I wanna be a lamb among wolves. What's he getting at there? What he means by that phrase is that in the same way that lambs among wolves are vulnerable, dependent on a shepherd, humbled by their need for help, that is the posture we should have in our own relational witness which is why he follows it up then in verse 4 with giving some more practical instruction. Take no money bags, no knapsack, no sandals, don't greet anyone in the road. And he tells them to not greet people, not to be rude, but because he wants them to wait until they get to the next town to try and meet their needs, to see if there will be somebody there who meets their needs and welcomes them into their home. Very simply, Jesus is telling them to be vulnerable and humble in the way that they witness about the good news. And this is counterintuitive to us because we think that the credibility of the message is dependent on our strength of position in the relationship we think that the good news of the kingdom is credible when i am strong which is antithetical to the gospel jesus is strong when we are weak that is the gospel As a result, we so often engage in relational witness from a place of superiority. We think that we're the ones who've got it all figured out. We're the ones who know what is true. And this is one of the reasons I think we can struggle to be a witness at all, is because we do not like to do things that we're not good at, and we don't like to fail at things. We don't like to feel weak or unable to control the outcome. And when you are a relational witness, you don't get to control the outcome. We fear that in our witness that we will fail, that we will be rejected, that we will be judged. But Jesus presents a picture of relational witness that is vulnerable, that leaves us exposed to the possibility of rejection. And we have this in common with these early disciples that as we present the good news of the kingdom, we must be open to the possibility that our message will be rejected. And here's the deal as I said, this is the message of the gospel. We are weak, and we are in need of a savior. We have failed, and we need his strength. We have sinned, and we need his forgiveness. So let's not engage in relational witness from a place of superiority, but a place of humility and vulnerability. Feel free to let your neighbors know of your own fears and your own failures. Take a step of vulnerability. Risk the possibility of rejection in your witness. See, we are just weary travelers along this journey right along with our neighbors. And God, in his grace, he has given us the map home. Let's not pretend like we figured it all out on our own. Let's just invite our neighbors to join us in that journey, helping them to find home as well. The fifth lesson we learn is that we witness intentionally, but not manipulatively. In verses 5 and 10, Jesus gives some very clear instruction to the 72 about how to go about this mission. And like these early disciples, we need to be intentional and we need to be strategic, but not manipulative. And there is a difference between the two. Here's what Jesus said to do in verses 5 and 6. He says, to find people of peace. And he says, when you enter a house, first say, peace be on this house. And then that peace will be received or it will be rejected. And if it's received, then he says, stay a little while, right? Receive their hospitality. Be vulnerable, be dependent on them. And if it is rejected, then you can move on to a new home in a new village. Now, this isn't some like magical formula. This isn't like some phrase for like magical evangelism. So the next time you go to your neighbors and they invite you over, do not step through the threshold of their house and just say, peace beyond this house. I think that would probably be unnecessarily awkward for everyone involved, right? But here's what I think this might look like today in our own lives, okay? Take a moment to think about 10 people, maybe some of the 10 you thought about earlier, but 10 people you interact with regularly in your life. Not necessarily your immediate family that live in your home, but neighbors, co-workers, other roommates, extended family. Now, as you hold those people in your mind for a moment, start to ask yourself, when I talk about Jesus and the kingdom, When I ask questions about deeper things, when I talk about the peace that Jesus brings, do they listen? Do they want to talk more? Do they show an affinity for Jesus, even if they don't follow him yet? Or do they reject him and show no interest? People who show interest, who want to engage in deeper conversations about faith and life, these are people of peace in your life. Keep praying for them and investing in them. Be intentional about the questions that you ask them and the way that you spend time with them. And there's a difference in this between being thoughtful and this turning into something manipulative. Being thoughtful and intentional means that you begin praying for your neighbor. It means you spend an extra five to 10 minutes having a conversation with them in your yard. It means you take a risk to be vulnerable in your own weaknesses and fears. It means you have ears to listen and hear what their fears are. It means that Jesus will come up in conversation because he's part of your life. Maybe you invite your neighbor over for a meal and you practice hospitality. You help them feel welcome. You ask good questions and you ask them something deeper than work or weather or whichever Minnesota sports team that we're disappointed with that week. You continue to do that over the course of weeks and months and years and all along the way, the gospel continues to be presented as good news. And when I say it's presented as good news, I'm not saying every time you have to get out the sheet of paper and draw the bridge diagram, but that you continue to talk about how Jesus is changing your life, why it is good news for you, how in your weakness, he has met those needs, how he is changing your life. That's intentionality. Now, let me give you two examples of how this can be manipulative. And then we'll end on these. And, and I give these as negative examples because I think sometimes when we name what we don't want, it helps us to move toward what we do want. The first way that it can become manipulative is the awkward Jesus juke. Here's what we so often end up doing. We know we should be sharing the gospel. Because, but, but we're not, because we kind of feel awkward about it. We don't know how to do it. And so we're hanging out with our friends and our family and our, our co-workers or whoever. And, and we're, we're having conversations, but Jesus and faith don't come up as often as we think that it should. And then we begin to feel guilty about it because we're like, I probably should be saying something. I'm not saying anything. And it goes this way for weeks and months and years until we feel enough guilt or we feel enough pressure to share the gospel with our neighbors. And then it becomes a massive event. And if you've ever done this, you know the kind of anxiety that comes. We invite them over for dinner. We gather around the table. Our hands are sweating. Our heart is pumping. And we are nervous. I feel nervous now, just describing it. But we're finally going to do it, right? And then 10 minutes into the meal, we drop a bomb on them that they had no clue was coming. They didn't even know we followed Jesus yet. And now we're ready to convert them to following Jesus too. And here's where evangelism can begin to feel like multi-level marketing. If you've ever had it happen to you, you know what I'm talking about. Your college buddy that you haven't spoken to in five years reaches out to you out of the blue, and they invite you to come over for a meal, and you think, this is gonna be great, we haven't talked for so long, I'm excited to spend some time with them. 10 minutes into the meal, they tell you about their business and how you can own one too. And this isn't what you expected when you came over. Pay this fee, work under me, Get your friends to do the same. Now, not all multi-level marketing is bad, right? I'm not going to say that, but there's a reputation for a reason, and so often the way we evangelize can feel very similar. The second way that it can become manipulative is when we see people as projects, or I'll say people as project syndrome. Being intentional and strategic does not mean that we see people as projects. The ministry of Jesus always included two aspects. We see them in verse 9 as he sends out these 72. To demonstrate the kingdom by healing the sick and to proclaim the kingdom by sharing the good news. They so often come together. But we so often use the demonstration of the kingdom as just a means to get to the other one. And if it's not working very well, then we just stop demonstrating the kingdom altogether. And that's when people start to feel like a project. See, Jesus and his disciples, they had this unique outpouring of the Spirit here to heal and cast out demons. And there are times in history, certain places in the world where we see these supernatural expressions far more often. So often for us, though, we demonstrate the kingdom, we express the kingdom by just shoveling the driveway for our neighbors, by bringing a meal to someone who's sick. Someone here brought me a meal while our family had COVID. It was such a blessing, right? Those sorts of things demonstrate the kingdom. Crying with someone whose loved one had died or investing in a practical local ministry that meets practical needs, like In Love Word Indeed does here in Minneapolis for the homeless community, or New Life Family Services does for people with unexpected pregnancies. These are all ways that we can demonstrate the kingdom. And here's where it starts to become manipulative. When we see people as projects, and then we begin to meet tangible needs in their lives, not because we love them or we want to just demonstrate the love of Christ, but because we want to find a way to slip in our ability to share the gospel. Now, sharing the gospel is good. We should want to do that. But loving people with the love of Christ is also good, independent of it as just being a stepping stone to something else. We are called to love people and to demonstrate the kingdom, whether it leads to opportunities for proclamation or not. Now again, they often go together, they help to reinforce one another, but one doesn't necessarily serve the other. One of our recent members, or one of our members who is a missionary said to me recently, he gave me this phrase, do you love people in order for them to become Christians, or do you want them to become Christians because you love them? The first one can so often be manipulative. The second one is just being intentional because you love them. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why you might have had a bad experience with evangelism, but Jesus was consistently engaged in relational witness because he believed the gospel was good news. And if Jesus did evangelism, then so can we. The only alternative to bad evangelism evangelism is not no evangelism. The answer is better relational witness in the way of Jesus. And if we do it like Jesus, then as I said at the beginning, the relational, that relational witness means we consistently talk about Jesus because we truly believe the kingdom of God is good news for people. And now we're going to gather around the table of the Lord. And you know, if we're being consistent, if we're going to be consistent in our relational witness, then we need to know this good news. We need to know why it's good news. And when we gather at the table, it's one of the ways we remember that good news together, to celebrate that, cherish it in our life. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died. While we walked in darkness, light came. And we've been praying in 2023 that we would be compelled by Christ's love so that one of the things that's an outcome is we would also be ministers of reconciliation. These things begin to go together. It begins, though, with being captivated by the love of Christ. Here's the reality. That our vision of the gospel, that our understanding of the good news, that it can kind of leak at times. Our minds can forget the good news. We can get distracted by the news that we hear or by the brokenness that we see. And we need to continue to remind ourselves. For some of you, you might be coming in here even thinking to yourself, I cannot be a good witness because I'm such a bad sinner. You might feel like your power as a witness has been compromised because of your own sin from just this past week. But communion is an opportunity for all of us to bring all of that, to acknowledge that even in our own sin and our own brokenness, we remember the hope of the gospel together, the good news that Jesus came to rescue rebellious sinners like you and like me. And the best witness, or the best witnesses are people who know how forgiven they are. Those who are forgiven much will love much. And so let this table be a reminder for us all the forgiveness and the grace of God. Feel the freedom of the gospel wash over you. And let's remember together that there's no condemnation for those in Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.